If this is the first time that you are with us in the evening service for the last few weeks, we have been going through Colossians, talking about worldview and how living in Christ, being a Christian, shapes and forms our worldview. How it subverts secular conceptions of despair, of cynicism, and it provides alternative views of meaning and liberty. Now, I must admit, when I was assigned the sermon on consumerism, I was slightly perplexed. I'm not sure if I've ever heard a sermon on consumerism, but also excited. I pride myself in my lack of possessions. I have about five flannels that I go through, if you haven't noticed. I don't have a car. I have a very small room. I kind of like to think that I push back against this until I started doing sermon preparation on my MacBook, made calls on my smartphone, and am using my sermon notes off of an iPad tonight. We all consume. It's part of life. But how we consume, what we consume, differs. And consumerism characterizes the West in many ways. There's ad campaigns. There's shopping malls. For my American friends, we have a holiday, Thanksgiving, which we give thanks for all that we have been given. And the following day, we have what's called Black Friday, where the best sales and deals are found all year round. And people line up out the door for this. And quite literally every year, people die, being trampled by the crowds, running to get a new Xbox, to get a new TV, etc., etc. Our identity is largely defined not by who we are, but by what we have. With the right clothes, the right car, the right house, you can shape yourself to be who you want. In this piece of art by Barbara Kruger, you see the depiction, I shop, therefore I am, as Mike Ray translated for me into Latin, Tesco ergo sum. We are defined by what we have. Now, granted, in the last 10 years especially, there's been a big pushback against this movement. There's been minimalism. There's the tiny house movement. I'm going to live in the smallest quarters I can so that I can live simply, so I can't have an excess of things. But this is not... There's another picture here of a painting by Banksy with a woman trapped under a shopping cart, enslaved to the possessions that we have. In other art mediums, in music, an artist named Joe Pugs wrote, I say the more I buy, the more I'm bought, 
and the more I'm bought, the less I cost. The sentiment is not unique to our modern world, though. If we look back through history, asceticism, monastic movements, the putting off of the world and of possessions is a question that has concerned thinkers, Christian and otherwise, for many millennia. But the motivations of these movements, of minimalism, of monasticism, need to be put into question. Why are we doing and pushing back against consumerism? And how is that different from a Christian perspective on it? This evening, I want to discuss consumerism, but not consuming per se. Rather, I want to talk about why we consume excessively and how a Christian worldview is fundamentally opposed to this cause. How as Christians we are called to put on the new self, to put on love. So if you will turn into your text with me again to Colossians. We'll begin working through the passage together. And a a brief background about verse 3, which Andrew discussed last Sunday evening. We have verse 1 through 4, which talks about where we need to be oriented, on the things of above. It says, verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Continuing from verse 5 through verse 11, it's similar to a don't list. This is what the old self did. It was sexually immoral. It lusted. It had evil desires. These are things that you are to put off. These are the earthly things in your past. And in our passage, starting in verse 12, we have what it looks like to be in Christ. The do list, so to speak. Beginning in verse 12, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul here is calling believers to cultivate an attitude of spirit filled virtue. In this list that parallels the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, we see matters of the heart, of inner cultivation. Interestingly, Paul criticizes ascetic movements 
in the previous chapter in Colossians 2. In verse 20, since you died with Christ, the elemental spirits, spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul here is concerned with the heart first. But interestingly, it's an active calling. He tells believers to put on to clothe yourself, an imperative, a command. When we are made alive in Christ, yes, the Holy Spirit fills us, and yes, he infuses us with patience and supernatural love, but we are still called to actively engage in those things in very practical and in very daily ways. We don't learn to love wholly, on the first day of becoming a Christian. In fact, most of us will go through our whole lives without feeling that we have fully developed these virtues. An active putting on. And the climax of this paragraph is in 14. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And as I was thinking about this verse, I was, I was wondering what separated this from non-Christians. So of any of the things on this list, it seems like this would be the virtue that non-Christians would be most on board with. In protest slogans, we see love used often. Peace and love make love not war. Love trumps hate. In movies and romantic comedies, we see people going to insane lengths for their loved one. And I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more. What separates this love from that sort of love? Do not our non-Christians unable to love? Are we only able to put on love when we are in Christ? I would argue that no. Everyone has the capacity to love, of course. It's part of what makes us human. But what makes this love unique is where these virtues and this love is oriented. This love is wholly focused on God and the other. Because we love God, we love the other. And if we look in the previous verses from 5 to 11, in the Old Spirit, many of these vices 
can be attributed to the love of self, of loving ourselves over others. Why are we sexually immoral? Because we care about our own sexual gratification more than we do our spouses. Why do we slander? Because of the promotion of self at the expense of others. Christians are able to say the same protest slogans. Peace and love make love, not war. Love trumps hate, but for very different reasons. Another beautiful thing about this passage is that while Paul is very concerned with inner virtues, interlaced throughout the passage is outward actions, outward conduct towards loving others. In verse 13, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Further down in 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs, singing to God. Acts of communal worship together. And verse 17, the crux of the matter. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What is the heart of consumerism? The heart of consumerism is putting yourself or possessions over others. Instead of saying, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, we're saying, whatever you do, do it all in the name of self. Promoting self over others. The final nine verses the household codes. Quite honestly, make me slightly uncomfortable. <clears throat> First off, I'm not qualified to preach them. I am neither a wife nor a husband. While I like to think of myself as a child, my parents no longer call me to obey. I guess I'm sort of a slave if you consider my student loans but not in the technical sense. And I'm not a master. But fortunately, Paul wasn't any of these things either, and I'll rest in his authority over my own. But I also need to say that this passage makes me uncomfortable because it seems to reestablish classic hierarchical familial roles of the husband dominating over the wife and of masters 
over slaves. Does this passage generate oppression? Quite honestly, historically, it may have. It's undoubtedly been used by oppressive husbands and fathers and by slave owners. So what can we learn from a passage that seems laced with problems? First, that Paul calls us to love in the particular. He calls us to vocational love, to loving those who we are most intimate with, with our spouses, with our children, with our flatmates, students to professors, and the other way around. He sees it important that we focus our love in those relationships. And second, that we are called to submit. Now, submit is a dirty word in our culture. We don't like to submit. We all have authority problems, whether that's the police, our parents, our spouses. And much of modern liberation movements of feminism of LGBTQ rights are focused on breaking through oppression and submission. But this passage is calling for mutual submission across the board. Rather than just wives submitting to oppressive husbands, husbands are called to, to love their wives. And in a parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul says, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Christ died for his church. Slaves are called to obey their earthly masters, but masters are called to be right and fair. Paul uncomfortably does not seem concerned with emancipation, with overcoming oppression, but rather submission across the board. First to our Lord Jesus Christ, and then to each other. How different would our world be if we were all able to submit to one another in selfless love? An early church father, Christostom, said, To love, therefore, is the husband's part. To yield pertains to the other side. If then each one contributes his own part, all stand firm. From being love, the wife too becomes loving. And from her being submissive, the husband learns to yield. And I love how... He speaks of this in the passage about slaves. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Further down, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
mutual submission and selfless love. Alain de Baton, the surprisingly British-born author, wrote a book recently called Religion for Atheists. And in this book, he explores and pushes back against the new atheist movement, which says we have nothing to learn from religion. He says that's not correct. There are interesting things we can learn from religion, even if you don't have faith. And these are largely psychological, largely political, social. And in this passage, in the conclusion of the book, I found a very interesting paragraph. He says this, It has been my purpose in this book to identify some of the lessons we might retrieve from religions, how to generate feelings of community, how to promote kindness, how to select and make use of secular saints, how to achieve perspective through the sublime and the transcendent, and finally, how to coalesce the scattered efforts of individuals interested in the care of souls and organize them under the aegis of institutions. Well, this is a fascinating book. Despite its many flaws, one thing that I was, I was very interested was how many times he uses the term how. We can learn how to select, how to generate, how to promote, how to achieve. But he never really asks why. Why do Christians have beautiful community? Why do we promote kindness? Why do we have this perspective of the sublime and the transcendent? And that is because Christians have witnessed the most beautiful and particular act of love that this world has ever seen. The incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection. That is why we love selflessly, why we are oriented to God versus the self. And secondly, because we are called to this. It says in verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, we are called to love in this way because of who we are in Christ. Now, this sermon was supposed to be about consumerism. So let me talk about the implications of this sort of love on consumerism. If consumerism of excess is about the idol of self, about putting myself before the other, about loving care, loving comfort, about loving security more than God and other people, then this message of selfless love is deeply subversive to the spirit that gives way to this epidemic of excess. We are not called to be defined by what we have, but by who we are in Christ. 
and how that makes us love. We are called to cast off the spirit of consumerism and self-love for the spirit of Christocentric love. And this has direct implications about how we live. We can't just hide behind the motivations aspect. If money really is no object to us, if we are to love selflessly, can we have a large bank account? Can we have a huge home filled with more than we could ever want? Can we have two brand new cars? Or is that indicative of a selfish heart? I don't know. I cannot answer those questions for you. But that's something to search inside about. It also makes a difference about where we shop. Can we, as Christians, support institutions which are known to provide horrible conditions in foreign countries of child labor, of sweatshops, which devalue human life. Can we support such institutions if we are called to selfless love? I don't know. Those are questions that you'll have to answer for yourself. And lastly, we'll need to think about why we shop. And who we buy for. I feel like this message has been slightly sad. I don't know how. I don't know why. It's a message about love and the beauty in that. This message is beautiful for wives and for husbands, for children, for fathers. And Christianity is able to demonstrate a love that is so attractive. That's why someone like Elaine de Beton writes a book like this, because there's something beautiful about this selfless love. There's something beautiful about being oriented away from ourselves towards the Lord. There's something beautiful about Mother Teresa kneeling before the impoverished. There's Raisin Weekend going on outside. And as Andrew noted, the, the sadness of seeing some of these students being helped by the police in their drunken states. How can we selflessly love them? How can we love those around us? I want to finish with a quote from Augustine. I know I have to throw on as many early church fathers as I can to a sermon. It's the only time I get to talk about it. It's great. But it's this. God is love. What sort of face does love have? What sort of form does it have? No one can say. Nonetheless, it does have feet, for they lead to the church. It does have hands, for they are stretched out to the poor man. It does have ears, about which the Lord says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Dwell and you will be a dwelling, 
abide and you will be an abode. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. Through the beauty of that act. And I pray, Lord, that we respond with our entire being. That we learn to cultivate an attitude of inner virtue. And that it manifests itself in small acts of love to those around us. To our students, to our spouses, to our friends, to our flatmates. Lord, continue to work in our hearts. Mold us to be more like your son and to love fully as only you can. In your name I pray, amen.